Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. Thank you for joining me for episode 57, in which we're going to discuss what it's like to have COVID. Uh, not all that much fun. We'll talk about speedometers and how they work and some issues you might not even know you have, deer whistles and whether you should use them or not, a tale from the road involving a light at the end of a tunnel, and a contribution from my dear friend Patrick. Hello everyone, thanks very much for joining me once again, and thank you all for putting up with the rather unusual episode I did last week, and a special thank you to the folks who came to my rescue and helped me out. In case you missed the last episode, let me fill you in. I found out that I was positive for COVID-19. In fact, you can maybe hear in my voice that it's still a little bit rough, and well, that's because even though I'm technically no longer infectious, that means you can't catch COVID from me any longer, I'm still suffering from it, and apparently that is normal. I had a mild case, I wasn't hospitalized, I never had any trouble breathing, but I did have trouble talking, and more importantly, I had trouble with brain fog. Now, brain fog is a thing I have trouble with anyway, and from what I've been told from my elder friends, that is only going to continue as I successfully don't die. But uh, with this COVID thing, it's actually, it's, it's much worse. So I'm going to take up a bit of this episode to tell you about my experience with COVID. I know many of you are sick of hearing about COVID, but I'm going to apply it to what it's like to be sick in a van. I hope I will convince you to have a plan B for when this might happen to you. So I've talked about this in the past. If there's one thing you do not want, it's to be sick in your van. Vans are not great for sick people. And in maybe in ways that you haven't thought of. The first thing in my van, which is an NV200, it's a very small van. And if I have the bed set up, which I am likely to have if I'm sick in the van... I can't access my toilet. The way my bed is set up, it covers the door where the toilet comes out. So if I needed to use the toilet, maybe suddenly, I would have to leap up, open the door, go outside, flip up the bed, pull out the toilet, come back inside, and shut the door. And depending on what kind of illness you have, that can be really, really inconvenient. Another concern is that when you're sick, temperature control becomes very important because you may be running a fever or you just may not be comfortable unless the temperature is exactly right. And if there's one thing about vehicle dwelling, temperature is never exactly right. Unless you have a super fancy rig with all kinds of fancy controls, you are going to have to tolerate a wider range of temperatures than you do at home. And uh, it's really hard to do that when you're sick in a van. I know in my van, the temperature during the day when I'm in it can range, my comfortable range, that is, is from about 55 to 80. If I can keep the temperature between those degrees Fahrenheit, of course, then I'm going to be comfortable, I'm going to be okay. But if I'm sick, ugh, that's going to be much, much harder. Also, as I've said before, everything is harder in a van. That's not a bad thing necessarily, but cooking is harder. Cleaning is harder. You can't just load up the dishwasher, for example. Trash is harder. All the little things that you take for granted in a home are just a little bit harder in a van. And if you're sick, that is not going to be welcome at all. 
Now, COVID is a strange illness. I can't tell you what the symptoms of COVID are other than to say that it's everything. COVID affects people totally differently. There's a whole panoply of symptoms, only some of which I had. I didn't have the breathing problems that are so common. I didn't have what is called COVID toes, where your toes turn blue. I didn't have sores that are common. There's a bunch of things I didn't have, and then a bunch of things I did. Oh, and one thing that I didn't have, which is going to be a little surprising maybe, I never had a fever. Ever. All these tests you see where they make sure you don't have a fever, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have COVID because I never had a fever this whole time. What I did have was the virus. And how I found out I had it also bears talking about. Now, my wife is a doctor, and it's very important that she not get COVID, not only to protect her patients, but so she can go to work to take care of her patients. If she comes up COVID positive, she has to stay home for at least two weeks, and that means there's two weeks of patients that aren't getting seen. That's a bad thing. So it was very important that when I got tested that I knew the test was accurate. So here's the timeline of how this worked. Right around Christmas time, or a little bit after, I started to have the symptoms of a cold. You know, a little bit of sniffles, feeling a little run down, a little bit of a cough, no big deal. Except these days, that is a big deal. Because you have to ask yourself the question, how did you get a cold? Because all the precautions we're taking against getting COVID, wearing a mask, washing hands, all that type of stuff is also a precaution you take against getting a cold. After all, a cold is a viral illness. COVID is a viral illness. They are different viruses, but the idea is the same. So I couldn't figure out how I got a cold because I had always worn a mask. And I had actually not been around anyone. I basically self-quarantine almost all the time. So my wife said, well, maybe you should get tested for COVID. And I thought, well, that would be prudent, even though I really didn't think there was a chance that I had COVID. I mean, where would I have got that from? And it, it's true that some colds, it's easier to catch a cold by, like, touching a shopping cart than it is to catch COVID. COVID doesn't really transfer that way. COVID is much more, as they say, respiratory droplets, whereas cold viruses, which are often rhinoviruses, a completely different class of virus can often be picked up by like touching a shopping cart. Anyway, not to get into too much depth there, but I, I agreed that I would go get tested. Now, if you go get tested yourself, know this, there are two tests currently there. Well, there were two, there's actually more than two, and I'm sorry it's so complicated, but if you go to say a drive-through testing center, there likely will have two tests. One is called the rapid test, and that can give you results very quickly. In my case, I had a result in an hour. The other is called a PCR, and that can take a couple of days. When I pulled in, and this was a very easy process to get tested, they asked me which tests I wanted, and I said both. And they said, okay, that makes sense. They billed my insurance company. I didn't pay a cent or out of pocket. Of course, everyone's situation is different there. And then they did the nasal swab, which wasn't anywhere near as bad as people have been saying. I did not see funny colors or anything like that. And then I left. And an hour later, I got a text message saying, hey, check your results. And boom, negative. Ta-da-da, I didn't have COVID. Because I did the rapid test first. And when the rapid test came back, it said negative. And that is awesome and everything, except that I knew that if you get a negative result on the rapid test, 
it actually doesn't give you any information at all if you're negative. And this is part of the problem we have in the U.S. right now, is that people are relying on the rapid tests, getting a negative result, and thinking they're okay, when in fact, as happened with me, a PCR test, which is much more accurate, will show a positive result. And yes, two days later, I got another text message saying, check my results, and boom, I was positive. How do I know that the PCR test wasn't a false positive? Because false positives with PCR tests are extremely rare. So it's kind of the gold standard of testing for COVID. So you can trust a PCR test. The bad thing is they take two days. So what do I do? Well, I am not living in my van full time. I am living in a condo with my wife who I do not want to get sick. So I moved out. I moved out of the condo and got a hotel and spent a week there. And that's where last week's recording came from. And that's why last week's recording sounded so terrible because I was in this room with 15 foot ceilings. And anyway, sorry about the bad sound. I had to do that on my iPad. But you might say, why didn't I just go in my van? I went into a hotel because I knew I wouldn't be comfortable in my van. Not only is it Chicago and it's in the 20s here and it's cold and all that, when you're sick, you just want things to be easy. And again, life in a van isn't always easy. So here is my recommendation for you about this whole thing. First, keep following the guidelines for avoiding COVID. It is a real disease. It is very, very contagious. And even if you do all the right things, you still might get it. So wear a mask, socially distance, wash your hands, keep doing all that stuff. It is important and it will help keep you safe. Second, if you're considering any kind of van dwelling, short-term, long-term, full-time, whatever, please have an escape valve, a plan B, something to do if you get sick or if something happens to your van. Either of those possibilities is real. Have enough money or a place to go or something where you can hide out for two weeks. And you might say, well, that's expensive. Yes, it is. But holy cow, if, if you get the flu or COVID or any kind of bad illness, you are going to be so glad that you put this money aside or you arranged with a friend or a parent or whatever and had a place to go and crash. Because at the worst of it with COVID for me, and I had a mild case, I couldn't have driven. I couldn't do much of anything. The times when it was at its worst were really bad. I did not feel well at all, and I don't wish it on anybody. So that's enough about COVID. I don't intend to talk about it anymore, but I felt like I needed to explain a little bit of what happened last week and maybe give some insight to you. And please take my advice on this. Have your plan B or emergency fund set up for when this happens. And if it never happens, Great, all you've done is saved money. Tech Talk. Let's talk about speedometers for a bit. Now, everyone's driving around with their GPSs these days, right? And so many GPSs, uh, depending on which one you use or if you're using your phone, which program you're using, whatever, have a speedometer in them. And you may have noticed that your speedometer on your GPS will say 60 miles per hour, but your car's speedometer will say 62 or 63. What's up with that? And which one do you trust? Well, folks, you trust the GPS. 
Even though it's attached to your van, the speedometer is much less accurate than your GPS. Your GPS is actually giving you a reading of how fast you are going based on the satellites. The speedometer is getting its reading based on some gears. Now, if you have an old police car that says certified calibration on the speedometer, or a high-end truck, something like a, like a semi kind of a truck, or a really high-end Class A bus-style RV, you might have a super accurate speedometer. They do make them, but they're super expensive, and they're not what you typically find in a van or a car. Their accuracy is within 5 miles an hour. That's the standard. So if you are actually driving 60 miles an hour, this thing should read between 57.5 miles an hour and 62.5 miles an hour. And they tend to skew them a little high. So the speedometer will tend to show you moving a little bit faster than you actually are, which is in your benefit if you're trying to avoid a speeding ticket. Now, things can get much worse if you've altered your vehicle at all. If you have like an NV200 and you don't like the little tiny wheels it has and you put on bigger wheels, well, you have changed the mechanics of how the speedometer works. You've also changed the mechanics of how your odometer works. So everything gets a little bit more complicated because if you think about it, if you make bigger wheels, those wheels are going around fewer times to get you more miles. But what is being measured is how many times they go around. So that can be a problem too. Oddly, most cars do not have a way to adjust the speedometer. You can't fix it. But there is actually a way you can get a true speedometer reading from your car without using the GPS. If you do heavily modify your vehicle, let's say you put on big off-road tires, and that will definitely screw up your speedometer and odometer, there is a way that you can add a speedometer that will be accurate. It's using your OBD2 port. That's your onboard diagnostics port, that thing they use to check your emissions or whatever every year. You can get a speedometer that plugs in there, or more likely a gauge tool. I have a scan gauge too that does this. And believe it or not, that thing knows how fast you're going. The speed data actually comes through that port. And if you have one of these tools, you can adjust the speed with it. So what you would do is drive 60 miles an hour according to the GPS and then look at your scan gauge speedometer and see how accurate it is. And then there's a setting to adjust it. So if it's reading 57, you can do plus three and it will come up to 60. Then if you didn't have your GPS, you would have your scan gauge installed and you would have an accurate speed reading that wasn't coming from your traditional speedometer. Anyway, probably too much talk about speedometers, but just know that the more accurate thing is actually your GPS, even though it's not attached to your vehicle. Tales from the road. So, when I lived in Utah, it was a very different place from where I had grown up in Massachusetts. And I had to learn a little bit about how the roads worked there. As, as silly as that sounds, I actually got into an accident once simply because I didn't understand how an intersection worked. They had these weird X intersections that I'd never seen before. And at one point, I asked somebody directions, and they said to take the frontage road. And I had to ask them where frontage road was. I didn't know that there was this thing called a frontage road that was a road that paralleled the highway. But hey... 
I was only 20, I was learning things, and I was doing it all while driving an RV as my only vehicle. This was one of those little Toyota mini cruiser RVs that they don't make anymore, but you can imagine a little tiny Toyota pickup truck with kind of a Class C body on it. Very small thing, it was only 17 feet, but it was my daily driver, I drove it around. And one night, as I was coming back from visiting friends way out in the West Valley of the Salt Lake Valley, I was alone on big, wide-open roads, and I was on the main road, but I could see lights coming that were going to cross my road. And I knew I was on the main road, and they were on the smaller road, so they were going to have a stop sign, and I didn't worry about it too much. But as I got closer to the intersection, they weren't slowing down. In fact, they were going really fast, and I was at that point where I needed to either slam on the brakes or commit to going through the intersection, and for whatever reason, I committed to going through the intersection. So I floored it in my very, very slow vehicle, which meant it moved marginally faster. And I realized just at the moment that things were going to matter that it wasn't an intersection. It was a train crossing. You see, I didn't realize that in Utah, not all train crossings have arms that come down. And I was basically racing a train to a crossing. Now, if you know anything about railroad crossings, they're typically built up, so there's a little bit of a hump there. And by the time I hit the crossing, I had managed to get enough speed that I actually jumped the RV. The entire vehicle came off the ground and landed with a thud on the other side. And seconds later, a freight train went behind me at 80 miles an hour or whatever a freight train does. That was a good lesson to learn. I had never in my life seen a train crossing that didn't have crossing arms because where I grew up, every train crossing had crossing arms. I didn't know such a thing existed. So lesson learned, I was a bit of a dumbass, there's no question, but I now can say I have going for me that I actually did a jump in an RV. Now, what were the consequences of that? While examining the vehicle the next day, I found that all the cabinets that were permanently mounted to the ceiling and the walls had all shifted about half an inch. And under the vehicle, I noticed that my dually rear wheels had bounced up and hit the bottom of the RV and actually scraped off all the rust proofing that was up there. And I had two shiny metal spots on either side. But other than that, it was fine. And it was certainly much better than actually getting hit by the train. So, respect trains, respect train crossings, and really, don't try to outrun anything in these rigs. It's not a wise thing. Product review. Hey, remember deer whistles? I don't know if they still make deer whistles, honestly, but these are, these are little whistles that you attach to the front of your vehicle so that you scare deer off. At least that's how they're marketed. And the idea is that they give off an ultrasonic sound that deer can hear, but you can't. And the deer magically know there's a car coming and that they shouldn't jump out in front of the car. Yeah, no, they don't work. They don't work. Don't waste your money. Whenever I see somebody with deer whistles on the car, I know that they're probably somebody who has hit a deer and then decided they needed to do something about it, so they wasted 10 bucks on these little plastic on these little plastic whistles that don't actually do anything. Well, I take that back. They do actually make a whistle sound, but someone did tests and discovered that it's a sound that's too high for deer to actually hear. <laughs> Not only that, 
it's only three decibels louder than your average car. So basically your car is just as loud as this thing. And if the deer can hear the car and they're not avoiding that, they're not gonna avoid a whistle. And no, it doesn't matter if you get the powered ones, deer whistles don't work. So what does work? Well, there's no getting away from the fact that deer are everywhere and they're gonna be on the road. So all you can do is alter how you drive. If you can, drive with your high beams on because this will make the deer's eyes glow much brighter than on low beams. Also, if you can, drive near the middle of the road, that is away from the edges. This will give you more time to react if a deer jumps out on the road. And whenever you see one deer, you should always assume there are two or more because they're not solitary animals. So a deer generally has friends and sometimes they will jump out along afterwards right in front of your car. I have actually hit one deer and I had another deer hit my car. So deer whistles, don't waste your money. They don't work. Just try to pay attention while you're driving. This week's place to visit is a place I have never been, but I have heard of it. But I have heard of it and I want to go. And my longtime traveling buddy, Patrick, has been there and he's going to give us a report. So take it away, Patrick. Hi there, this is Patrick Degagne filling in for Jeff with a place to visit on the road. A few years ago, on a road trip from Montreal, Canada, down to Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah, I had the pleasure of visiting a rather unusual place. It was a strange mix of urban exploring, also known as urbex, and museum all in one. The visit was certainly unplanned, and to be quite honest, I didn't even know about this place until I checked into my hotel for the night in a small random town in Ohio after a very long day on the road. While checking in, I noticed that pamphlet rack showcasing the local attractions. You know that rack. It's in the lobby in every hotel on the planet, and it's usually filled with some of the tackiest tourist traps one can think of. One of the pamphlets caught my eye, though. The Ohio State Reformatory. As I read the advert, I found out that this is an old abandoned prison in Mansfield, Ohio that was left a rot for many years and was only recently turned into a museum. Well, kind of. A small part of the prison was fixed up and has exhibits, but most of it was just basically made safe, cleaned up a bit, and left as is. You visit it Urbex style. Well, that's certainly interesting. And since I have a few days to get to Colorado, it's definitely something I'll make time for tomorrow morning. Morning comes and I head to the reformatory. First impressions as I drive onto the site is, wow, this is a majestic building. It looks exactly like one would imagine an early 1900s prison would look like. As you enter the former administrative building, which now contains a small museum, you pay your fee and you have a choice to either join a tour, pick up an audio tour, or just explore on your own. As the next tour did not start for at least an hour, I chose to explore on my own. This prison opened in 1896 and operated for over a hundred years until it was closed in 1990 as a result of the prisoner's class action suit for overcrowded and inhumane conditions. Since its closing, a newer modern prison was built right next to it. Oh, and there's one small detail I did not mention. This prison is famous. As a matter of fact, it's Hollywood famous. This happens to be where the movie The Shawshank Redemption was filmed. As you start your tour and walk into the once luxurious warden's quarters and offices, everything looks old but quite nice. Some rooms look quite familiar if you've seen the movie. You continue your tour into the massive chapel and you get more and more of that urbex field. It's old, paint is peeling, it's worn, 
and it looks pretty darn cool if you're into that sort of thing. The chapel has a small side door. As you pass through it and enter one of the massive cell blocks, you realize you're in a completely other world. There is no longer any doubt, you're in an old prison. Everything is made of concrete and steel, paint is peeling and hanging off everything, there's rust, there's dust, it's amazing. Cells are in the middle, several stories high, all facing massive stone walls with big arching windows. There are bars everywhere, everything's made of steel. One of the cells that was used for the Shawshank movie is all dressed up, with cots hanging off the walls, all set up as if it were still occupied. The rest does look long abandoned. Below the windows, all along the big external stone walls, you see tiny little steel doors to the hole. Those doors can be seen from every cell. One is open, and you can squeeze in sideways to try it out. The holes are basically round, small cells. So small you have to stand. Forget about lying down or even sitting in there. And when the steel door is shut, you are in cold, humid darkness. You can visit the cell blocks, showers, kitchens, dining halls, workshops, and even the rec room which was also used in the filming of Shawshank. Many of the items from the movies were left in place in that room. There's more to see in the second, much older wing of the prison, from death row to unbelievably dated and awful early century cells, and the old chapel and rec room. This wing is in a heavy state of disrepair, and you really get the feeling you're visiting an abandoned building from another century. This was an unexpected visit, and though I planned on staying only one hour, I ended up spending half a day walking around. So, if you're ever in Mansfield, Ohio, or anywhere near for that matter, it's well worth the detour to visit the Ohio State Reformatory. Several tours are available, from a standard building tour to a so-called ghost tour, as well as a tour of the filming locations for the fans of The Shawshank Redemption. And, of course, you can just walk around and discover the place by yourself. Patrick, thank you very much for that vicarious visit. It definitely sounds like someplace I want to check out. Thank you for that. Folks, uh, Patrick is a firefighter in Montreal and often gives me advice on safety tips. And despite being hair challenged, he's a heck of a nice guy. So thank you, Patrick. I really appreciate that. Resource recommendation. Hey, this, uh, this came from our Facebook group, actually. If, you, if you're not aware, we do have a Facebook group for this podcast. It's called Built to Go a Facebook group, and I appreciate everyone who participates there, and I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, and it's part of having COVID, but some wonderful person in the group recommended this book for me. It's called How to Live in a Van and Travel by Mike Hudson. This is a great book. It's three years old now, which in van life terms is actually fairly old, but it tells the story of a guy who built his own van and traveled around Europe, and if you're new to van life, This book is written in a friendly, easy-to-access style, and it's going to give you all the basics from how to build a van to what to expect on the road. And it's, it's one of these books that you just kind of feel comfy with. You know, it's, a, it's like having a friend that you're talking to over coffee. So, again, an easy read. I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can certainly find it. It's called How to Live in a Van and Travel by Mike Hudson. And thank you, person who I can't remember for recommending it. It is a joyful read. Q&A. Where can I hang out with other van life folks online? Yeah, you know, that's actually a little interesting uh, bit of a challenge these days. 
Uh, as this episode is being recorded, the social network sites are going through an upheaval where some are being taken offline and others are growing and there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on. So I'm going to just tell you a few little tidbits that I've picked up on where to interact with people. Of course, there is Facebook, and there are hundreds and hundreds of van life groups on Facebook, and they're so super specific. You can get down to whatever kind of van you have or what kind of camping you want. Unfortunately, like most things on Facebook, they tend to be contentious. Uh, there's a lot of arguments, politics creeps in, people aren't very nice to each other, and it, it annoys me. It, it doesn't have to be that way, but for some reason, it does have to be that way. And that's why I created my own group for this podcast, because I'm in control, and I can actually prevent it from getting that way. But if you can get through the noise, you can get great information from these groups, especially van-specific information. For example, I joined groups that had to do with every type of van I was considering buying, and then just lurked there, and I learned a whole lot about ProMasters, like they have a problem with their headlights going out, and Econo lines that have a problem with spark plugs getting spit out of the engine, and Mercedes mattresses, which now have a recall, and apparently you can't get that recall fixed because they don't have the parts, etc. You can learn all this kind of stuff. Another place that's a great resource but requires a little bit more tech savviness is Reddit. Reddit is basically the world's largest message board, and there is everything on there. But it takes a little bit of work to figure out how it's structured, and you kind of have to maintain it. But holy cow, if you have a question, you can find the answer on Reddit. It just might take a little work. Another place is Discord. Now, Discord is a little bit different. Discord is like Slack or Microsoft Teams. It is a, a chat software that is persistent, meaning that you don't have to be on it the whole time. It'll save messages for you, unlike, say, IRC, the old school chat. I joined a Discord group, and I'm not going to mention it because I found out that there were some problems with the moderators being racist, and I didn't want to deal with that. But you can Google Discord and Van and maybe find a group that fits you. In these times of COVID where we can't be social the way we're used to, and the fact that we're just living on the road, many of us, these social networks can actually be quite helpful in preventing loneliness and, making and, and allowing us to feel connected. So I do recommend you spend some time finding your little niche. But you're going to have to do it for yourself. And hey, if you want to start someplace that's fairly friendly, go ahead and join our Facebook group at built to go a Facebook group. Thanks for listening to this episode 57. And again, thanks for your patience and all the help I received for the last episode and this episode. I'm going to have a little bit of help next episode too. So thank you to everyone who helped me out. I really do appreciate it. Music as always was by Simon Wagg. And remember until next time what Roman Payne says, never did the world make a queen of a girl who hides in houses and dreams without traveling.